share with you from 1 John tonight, 1 John 3. I think the reason my heart was drawn here uh, is partly because of having preached through the Gospel of John. And uh, John, of all the disciples, uh, was, seemed like went the farthest with Christ. In fact, uh, even at the crucifixion of Jesus, he was at minimum within earshot. We don't know exactly how close he was to Jesus as they were putting Jesus upon the cross. But once Jesus was suspended and hung upon the cross, uh, perhaps the centurions backed away to some degree, but we know from the scriptures that uh, John was nearby with Mary, the mother of Christ. And there's where Christ uh, really commends his mother into the care of John. And I, it's often amazed me that John, even referring to himself, calls himself the beloved. And I've always thought that may have been because John had an eyewitness firsthand account of the depth of Christ's love and was so profoundly affected by what he witnessed upon the cross. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a John who was present when Jesus rebuked Peter and told him, do you not think I can now call 12 legions of angels and they will not come to my rescue? Here's a man who had the capacity uh, to call upon 12 legions of angels, uh, yet yielding now upon the cross to the torture of the cross and and so just the observance there of the love of Christ on his own behalf even personally for him as for all sinners as well must have must have forever impacted John he never again referred to himself as John but always as the beloved the one loved and it seems in 1st John he speaks a lot about the love of God so it's not surprising to me that John would speak this way having uh, not only the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but his own personal experience. Uh, just a few verses. I'll read a few, but I just want to think about just a few tonight. You, you hear me quote these often, and they've been so instrumental in my own life uh, in regards to growing in the faith, in regards to sanctification. And that's beginning in John, 1 John 3, beginning in verse 1. John writes here, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet appeared as what it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I'll read on. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure none, no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, but he, but just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that it, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I'll just stop there. I want to look mainly this night at verses 1 through 3, because they have been so transformational for me. Uh, I'll give you a hint, and you may already know this, but I'll give you an indication of the particular verse in this that struck me early on in my Christian life and I think has been so instrumental to my understanding of what sanctification is or what is the means of sanctification. When he says in verse 2, we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him in this phrase, because the cause of our being like him is that we will see him just as he is. Uh, and I'll come back to this, but that was, that was stunning in my Christian life because it taught me early on that the key to my being like him is seeing him. Now, not just then, he's saying here when he appears... We're going to see him, and in the seeing of him, we're going to be transformed to be like him in the seeing of him. But I think the truth applies now in that way as well. So I just want to look through these passages, beginning in verse 1, just a, just a brief look here at the great love of the Father. In verse 1, he says that, see, I love the King James here because it says, behold, what manner of love he hath, the Father hath loved us with. I, I like the word behold. It means basically the same thing as see, but something about the word behold seems to call me to attention. It's not just a general, a general, oh, by the way, it's something, there's something here that you are mine, you might be prone to overlook. Behold, look at this. And so what he's talking about here is the love of the Father. He's not really talking about sanctification per se. He's saying, behold, take a look at the nature or the love of the Father. So that's what he's calling our attention to. See how great a love the Father has for us. In chapter 4, verse 8 of the same book here, John says that the essence, or he says that God is love. So in some sense, the essence of God is love. It is, it is inherent in his nature. He is love. He's also, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, he says there that this love, but the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So this great love of the Father is part of His being. It is, in essence, His being. It's by His very nature. It's not something He does, does a verb. It is, it, is, it is descriptive of His being, His love. But He has manifested that love in us. And I think ultimately in our union with Christ and by the Spirit's abiding with us in general, you could be more specific in thinking about that. But He has manifested us, that love in us, He writes. 
In verse 9 as well, he's manifested that love or we see that love, the manifestation of that love through his sending his son. In verse 9, he says, "By by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So that's, that's the love of God manifested in the sending of the Son. So behold what great love the Father has for us and that he would send the Son as, a, as the means by which he might manifest or reveal the great love of the Father. John's calling our attention to this in verse 10 of chapter 4. It says here, in this is, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, behold the great love of God. That God incarnate, the son would come into this world so that we might have life and therefore manifest this love in us. And that in this son, he might be the propitiation. He might be the, the sponge, as it were, that would draw in the condemnation and the punishment for our sins. Behold the great love of the Father that would do that. That's what John is calling our attention to. In verse 10 and also again in verse 19, but I think it is the preeminent love here as well. Behold, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. In verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So this is a preeminent love. The great love of the Father is preeminent. In Romans chapter 5, if you don't have to turn there, but you remember Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Again, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. So God's love is the preeminent love. In fact, our love to God, John says in chapter 4 in this, in this epistle, is a reciprocal of his love for us. In fact, I would go so far as to say our proper loving of one another is itself rooted in his love extended to us. God's love is the preeminent love. Now, all other loves, if they be rated, I think should, ha- should have to be rated in comparison to the love of God. Love for husbands, love for wives, love for children, love for church members, love for relation- family members. Our love should be measured against the love of God. A good tool for that is 1 Corinthians 13 that shares with us in regards to what love is. And there are others in scriptures as well. But that's what John is calling our attention to. And he's going to talk about how this love unfolds, as it were. But his first point here is to call our attention to the great love of the Father. And it is. If you take some time and sit down and and just contemplate the greatness of the love of God. Here's one of the greatest things about it. It is is unconstrained. Uh, It is not... It is not constrained in any way by us, even in our sins. In fact, our just condemnation is just. The justness of it doesn't doesn't itself demand or draw out somehow or another by obligation the love of God. It is completely unconstrained. It's not constrained by us whatsoever. It is sovereign love. 
It is extended and expressed and revealed according to the purposes of God, not by any warrant that we have at all. In fact, our best days, I wrote in my notes at home, man in his highest glory, however high that may be, will never, will never exceed the purpose for which he was created. He will always be a dependent creature. And in that alone, that this God who brought us into existence would commune with us at all. Even that he would manifest his glory in creation, Romans 1, 18 and following. Even that he would do that is demonstrative of the character of the nature of God. All the more so that he would save sinners who were in active rebellion against him. Not only by nature, but by act. We're sinners by nature, but we all sin. We willfully, defiantly, in the face of God, sin all of our days. And while we're in that condition, while we are yet in rebellion, God demonstrates, Romans 5, his love. In that he sends his son to die and to be the propitiation for those sins. So he takes upon himself literally the penalty of our sins in Christ. So that's the great love. You could say much more about that. But it's also in verse chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and again in Ephesians 1, 5. It's a love that adopts. That is just really remarkable to me. In John chapter 3, the gospel of John, we hear the idea of the new birth. Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I think you find the priority of the spiritual work in there because he says the new birth precedes seeing and entering the kingdom. So there must be a sovereign demonstration or act of that love to, to bring the view of the kingdom, not to mention the entering into the kingdom. So we already know that in adoption there is a new birth. We are made new. In chapter 3, verse 1 again, see how great the Father has Love he has bestowed on us in that we would be called the children of God. He says it later on, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. That's a new birth. That's a new identity, as it were. We have a new birth. We have a new name, as I've already mentioned there. He says we're the children of God. We have a new identity as well. Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 you look at verse 1 in the latter phrase of that, for this reason the world does not know us. But I love it here when he says prior to that, that we should be called the children of God. And then he says, that's what we are. So, so we don't just have the title, that's what we are now. We're not going to be the children of God. In this new birth, in this love of God displayed, we are presently children of God. It's not something we're going to be. It is something we are now. We have a new name. We have a new identity. And I love the passage that follows. We also have a new citizenship. Because we are that, the world doesn't recognize us. And that's one of the striking things to me about the Christian life. The, more, the, more, the longer I follow Christ and the longer his work is ongoing in me, the more alienated I feel in this world. Is that true for you? 
I mean, you watch the world go about its functions and they say and do things and they are engaged in things that they are completely okay with. And it doesn't seem to occur to them to even question those activities. But as a Christian, as we grow in Christ, we recognize that I'm not at home there anymore. I'm just, I'm just not, it's not a natural, comfortable place to me for me to be. That's remarkable because there was a time when I lived in the world and I was absolutely at home in the world. And I gathered myself around people that were as home in the world as I was. But now I look back on those and I think to myself, I would be so uncomfortable in those contexts and those situations now. I'm just not of this world. There's something happened. That's the great love of God that has brought about your adoption and you are now children of God. And if the world doesn't recognize you, that's because they don't know Him. You're an alien to them as well. And to me, when, especially when faithfulness to God and secularism and humanistic thinking starts to really stretch far apart and there's no common ground at all, that not knowing God and not knowing where you're coming from is going to make you in this world the enemy of the, of the, the agenda of this world. And that's where I think persecution begins. It's already started and it has been ongoing in the world since the, since the beginning so we have a new identity, a new birth, a new name, a new identity, a new citizenship. And again, in 1 John 3, 2, that is a present reality. He says, beloved, now we are the children of God. We are now the children of God. That's going to be important to what he says following here. Because, and I use the term positional, some people may use different terms, but that's what I am. And you say, well, Larry, sometimes I don't feel like a child of God. Maybe not, but that doesn't change the positional reality of what you are in Christ. You are now a child of God. If you've come to believe in Jesus Christ and come through Jesus Christ to the Father, you have been adopted into God's family, as it were, and you are co-heir with Christ. You are a child of God. You say, well, that's not my natural place. I know that's why they call it adoption. You've been grafted in now to the family of God, into the vine who is Christ. You have been grafted in. You are now a child of God. Now, here's where I think we make a mistake. There are people who run with that and leave out what he's about to say next and run with that and do anything they want in life and rejoice because I'm a child of God. I've heard people use that and manipulate that to the point that they almost say that anything's permissive now because I'm a child of God and he loves his children. Why shouldn't I exalt myself? God, I'm a child of God. I'm a prince and I'm a princess. I mean, it goes to these extremes. Yes, we are children of God. But that's a positional reality brought about by the sovereign grace of God in the new birth. That positioned us in Christ and that's exactly what you are tonight as a believer. But then he says something, I think, what I call a love now that transforms. Because then he says, we are now children of God, verse 2. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Well, he just said, I'm a child of God. I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a child of God. So, so does he mean, I'm, we're a child of God. I know what I am, but I don't know what I am. 
I think he means, that's why I use the word positional. We are by position and by the sovereign grace of God, a child of God. That is who we are. That is our identity. But we don't know what that means. We don't know that experientially yet. There is a already and a not yet principle going on here. There is a, I wrote in my notes, we are and we will be going on here. In fact, I think the we will be can be assured because of the we are. I am a child of God through the new birth, and therefore I have assurance that whatever it is that I will be in full experientially will come about based upon the, the sovereign grace of God to make me what I am positionally. And so I'm convinced that, that that is part of what makes me hold fast to the not yet part of that. Notice here as well that he says, we don't know yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, I think he's speaking here particularly of the return of Christ, and we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So this is what I call the catalyst here. And I say this for both sanctification and glorification. It's interesting, the word catalyst, and I use that word deliberately because the definition is this, a person or thing that precipitates an event. Jesus is the person, and his appearing is the event. That's the thing that precipitates the event, which is my being what I've been called positionally to be, my being that experientially. And that's been the, that's been the driving force in my Christian life, really all of my life, through the Word of God, through the Spirit, certainly all those things have come to bear in my sanctification. But there's this one hope that, that is that is grounded there, and it is this. The more clearly I see Christ, the more, the more like Christ I become. The reason you and I are not like Christ more than we are today is because our view of Him is obscured, sometimes by pride, sometimes by ignorance, sometimes by, by indifference, sometimes by a lot of different things, certainly by this old sinful nature that we are to be putting to death, sometimes by a multitude of things. But the reason you are not more like Christ than, than you are tonight is because you don't see Him any clearer than you do tonight. Now, next week, that may change. You may open the Word and in prayer and, and God reveals Himself and you see the glory of Christ in a, in a profound and a different way that you've never witnessed before. And having seen Him more clearly, that will have an impact in your life and it will produce in you a, an obedience and a following Him. And, and over time, that be, makes you more and more like Christ. And I think here at the return of Christ, the reason it's so transformational, in fact, Paul says in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it, that transformation will happen in a moment because when he returns, then he's going to be seen in all of his glory, unobscured, and the, the, the very sight of that sort of glory has an immediate transformational impact. You become in a moment like Christ, what we are becoming in sanctification. That is just, that cannot be disregarded or overlooked. I say this carefully and I say it intentionally. You are, you are not becoming like Christ by keeping your devotions dis with discipline. 
You're not becoming like Christ by continually and consistently coming to church. Those are, those are secondary, but that is not the catalyst. The catalyst is in your devotions and in your study and in your gathering with the people of God. Then you're beholding Christ through His Word and the glory of Christ illuminated by the Spirit of Christ. And you're seeing Christ. That's what changes you. That's why I've met people who probably know more Bible history than I've ever known. And I'm convinced that they don't know Christ by the things they say. Their, their, lives is not, their life isn't transformed by what they're learning. They have all the facts and they have all the dates and they can tell you all the stories and all the characters in the Bible and they made a, 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 an intellectual pursuit of the Bible, but there is no manifestation of Christ's likeness in them. Why? Because that thing is not the catalyst. That's an instrument by which you, the catalyst reveals himself. And there is a difference. There's a distinction there. And I think for me, what it tells me is when I open my Bible and I'm reading the Word of God, then I ought to be anticipating that the Spirit of God will illuminate and reveal to me the glory of God in the truth of God so that by seeing Him more clearly, these things might have an impact and begin to transform me into Christ's likeness. And I really believe that's the essence of what sanctification is. By God's grace, through His Word, through all the things that are mandated in Scripture that we do as Christians, through all of those instruments, Christ reveals Himself incrementally and in stages as we live this life. We see Him more and more clearly and our lives begin to transform and become more Christ-like. And I think that's what we ought to be teaching others. Yes, teach them the Word, but let them know that the Word is inspired of God, and it is instrumental. It is the Word of God. It will not come back to Him void. It is instrumental in showing that. Jesus challenged the religious leaders, you remember? He says to them, you search the Scriptures thinking that you might have eternal life, but they are they which speak of me. You, you looked into the Word, and you thought that by your mastery of the word you would have eternal life and you miss the glory of the one the word was pointing to which is what would have transformed your life that's a different thing and I think that's critical that's critical in fact without that you might become self-righteous you might have such a mastery of the Scriptures that you think to yourself that your mastery itself has made you worthy now to be acceptable to God. And you've not seen the glory of Christ if you believe that. Because your mastery of the Scriptures is as nothing in compared to the one who gave the Scriptures and the glory of the one who gave those Scriptures. And I think the church, to be honest, needs to hear that in our day. Here's where, here's where I think this is really hits the road. Verse 3. I'm not going to be lengthy tonight because I don't think I need to be. But he says here, And everyone, everybody who has this hope. Uh, fixed there is in italics. It's not in the original manuscript, so you could read it this way. Everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself. 
I thought to myself before, the hope itself resting in the right place becomes purification. And there's a sense in which I could make the case here. But this is active. This is, this is, it is this hope, this hope that my attempts to see Christ in this life are not futility. And that it is the catalyst for my becoming like Christ. And that it will be fulfilled someday at my going to Christ or Christ's return. And the certainty that I will achieve and finally realize Christ's likeness, it is that hope that causes me to engage myself in actively pursuing holiness. You see that? If you agree with that, say amen. I need to hear that. Because that's exactly what I think he's saying here. It is that hope, it is that very hope fixed upon Christ and the seeing of Christ and the transformation that comes about through seeing of Christ. It is that hope that causes me to go out tomorrow and read the Word and want to live my life in obedience to that Word. Number one, because I know that it's not an exercise in futility. It is a struggle. There is the old man and Christ through the Spirit and through the truth will be putting to death the old man today, tomorrow, and every day of my life until then. But I press on because my hope is fixed here. Seeing Christ is the catalyst for my becoming like Christ. And the more I can see him tomorrow, the more I'll be like him the day after. And the more I can see him and the more consistently I see him and the more fully I see him through his word, obviously, and through the spirit, the more like him I will become over time. I think sometimes if we, if, we get, if we narrow this thing down to a list of things I need to do to become like Jesus, and we forget about seeing Christ, we're going to soon be overwhelmed. You may last a lot longer than I do because you're more disciplined than I am, but I can tell you right now, if it boils down to me abiding by a list of things I ought to do to be more like Christ, I'm going to fail rather quickly. But if through the truth of the word and through discipline and through making an effort, I am seeing Christ more clearly than I see the goal. I used to, I remember I would run when we kickbox early in my, in, with my dad, but he would call, he would make us run five mo- miles in the morning and five miles in the evening. And I was in wonderful shape. I could probably run 10 miles. But you know what I hated about running five miles? I couldn't see the goal. I could sprint, you tell me it's 100 yards, and I see where I got to go, and there's something about seeing that that drives me towards it. But when you tell me it's five miles, I can't see the finish line. And it just seems like futility to me along the way, especially if you tell me there's no particular time limit on you getting there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tend to wander and loaf. Now, maybe that's peculiar to me. Maybe you don't have that issue. Maybe you could run a 26-mile marathon and have the goal inside all the way. But this passage here indicates to me that seeing Christ is the goal. If I see Him clearly, I'm not likely to waver because He's real to me. He's he's experientially a part of my life. He's not a concept. He's not a doctrine to be believed. He is a person with whom I am relating to. And that's a change. That's 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 a difference from just doing the things that Christians do. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There again, seeing his purity 
Seeing his holiness, seeing his glory motivates, as it were, and even empowers to some degree spiritually our pursuit of holiness. We see him, he's pure. We want to be pure. Sin sin doesn't have a place in our lives. It becomes distasteful for us because we see him and we see his purity to whatever degree we do. And we're ashamed and we're disgusted and despised by our own impurity. So we commit ourselves now to a holier life and on and on that goes. And if you think you've achieved that to some degree, you're just not up to date on your view (laughs) In other words, you may, have, you may have gained great ground, but you're yet to see him in full. And so tomorrow you may see him more clearly and you'll realize that the holiness with, to which you have attained in your personal living falls far short of what you behold that day. And so you, re, you reorient yourself, as it were, to continue to pursue that holiness because you're seeing that holiness in Christ himself. You're beholding Christ and as you're beholding him, He is creating in you through His truth, through His power, through the Spirit. He is creating in you this yearning to be more like Him because being like Him draws you into fellowship and the closer fellowship you enjoy. Uh, I'll be honest with you, that's the worst part about conviction for sin for me is because whatever level of intimacy you're enjoying with Christ, sin immediately has an effect on that. I don't feel as close as I felt yesterday. I don't, I don't rejoice in the intimacy that I enjoyed yesterday. There's something wrong in my life. And as resistant as I may be to getting that right, I will not be able to go long with that absence of that intimacy because it's the absence of that intimacy that draws me back to Him. And I come back in 1 John 1, 9 and confessing my sins and And he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he draws me back into that fellowship. And I realize in that moment, I'm home again. I'm home again. Don't want to leave here. And we follow him on that way all of our days. It always has amazed me among the Christian, in the Christian faith, among a gathering of believers like this, how we're all at different places along that pursuit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we've all come to certain understandings through the Scripture, through the Spirit. We've seen Christ to some, to some degree, and that's had an effect in our lives, and we're becoming Christ-like. We look, all, we look around at each other, and we know that sometimes we're a little behind in one area, and maybe they're a little ahead, or we're a little behind here, and they're ahead over there. And we're, we're all seeing Christ as He sovereignly ordains along the way, and in those areas we're being shaped like Him all the way home. And someday whether it be through death in this life or whether it be, be in the return of Christ, you're going to see him finally, finally, without the obscurity of sin. Your eyes will be as it were. The veil will be rolled back. We're not seeing through a glass darkly then. Then it's face to face. Then when we see him, such will be the overwhelming glory of that Christ that it'll have the effect of producing in us immediately our transformation. So what took all these years, what's taking all these years to happen to make you like Christ is incrementally and because of the dim views we have of Christ. Someday that's coming to a, conclu- a conclusion. And all those dark clouds and all that, all that sin-marred view is going to be taken away. And in that moment, you'll see Christ in all of His glory. 
And I can, I can say this from personal testimony. Whatever taste I've had of that glory in this life has immediately changed me. It has. I've never, there have been moments in my life through the scriptures for me mostly and the Spirit opening something and making, connecting things and causing my understanding to behold Christ more clearly. And I knew from that moment on, I can't go back to that before. Now I may fight to keep this in order and keep this balance going forward and I need to make sure I'm incorporating this into my doctrines of Christ and the biblical doctrines. I may have all the fights of the flesh ahead, but I'm not after this experience the same as I was before it because I've seen Christ more clearly. And in the seeing of that glory, you have in essence, in a sense, been transformed to whatever level of that glory He has been. Revealed to you by His grace. I think understanding that, that, that passage this way helps me so much when I begin to read beyond that. Because verse 4, there's some tough verses from 4 and following. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And you know that all sin is lawlessness. But other ones, no one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. I, I, that only makes sense to me in the context of what I was just sharing there. John is thinking in these absolute terms, in terms of the surety of the, what's promised there, that Christ being the catalyst and seeing Him and the overwhelming love of God and the manifestation of those things. If those things are true in your life, you're not going to abide in sin. He, he goes later on. In fact, 1 John 1, 9, he has already said, if we see him, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That, I don't think he's saying here that the Christian is never going to sin again, but you will not abide sin in your life if you're seeing the holiness of Christ. And if you are abiding and nursing sin in your life or my life or our lives together, it is because you are not seeing Christ fully enough. And perhaps the remedy for nursing sins in our lives is to go to the Word, win prayer, ask God to reveal Himself more fully to you through the Scriptures. That you might see Christ more clearly so that sin will be distasteful for you from that point on. At the very minimum, that sin. And it's a lifetime work of God in our hearts. As Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is He who is at work in you to both do and to will for His own good pleasure. Well, that suggests to me that I have an active role in that somehow, even if it's a responsive role, it's not an initiating role, but I have an active role in responding to the work of God in my heart. And I believe that word, that work is ultimately to show us to Christ, always or show Christ more fully to us. In Romans chapter 8, we read, from Romans 8 a lot and have found much encouragement. But in verse 28, we all know this verse and we found great encouragement. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, I'm thinking purpose. Okay, what's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is his purpose. <laughs> That's his purpose. Causes all things to work together for good to, to the fulfilling of His purposes. That is our good that we be transformed to the image of Christ. And the catalyst for that good, according to 1 John 3, I believe, is the beholding of Christ. Which you can't do apart from the grace of God. But with that grace and with that mercy of God, 
He reveals to us the glory of Christ from one glory to another, as it were. So I hope that help, that's helpful for you tonight, especially the end there, that it is, this encourages the active pursuit of holiness, not based upon works, because now you're not pursuing it because you think if you get there, you'll be received by God. You're, you're pursuing holiness because you've seen Christ and the holiness of Christ and the purity of Christ. And, and so as you see that, you're eliminating sin in your life as a result of having seen that glory. And you're resolved now that you're pursuing holiness because, or purity because He is pure. And you can do that with great confidence, knowing that your efforts are not futility, as I've already said, and that ultimately that job will be completed. God will complete that sanctification, ultimately in glorification. So stand with me tonight. And that's what's been on my heart after the Gospel of John. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for that grace that has revealed Christ to us in, in the new birth and also throughout our Christian lives. Lord, I pray that when we open our Bibles and when we listen to preaching or teaching and when we study at home, that we open these Bibles and we search the word not just to get our facts straight, Father, those are important, but not for that reason alone, but that through the truth we may behold Christ more fully. And in the beholding of Christ, we trust by your word and by your power that our lives will become to, become to look more and more as the life of Christ. Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so, Father, through your word and through your spirit, would you renew our minds? Lord, may we see Christ more clearly in our lives. Bless those who've come tonight. Lord, thank you for their, their devotion to Christ, which is a mercy as much as mine. And Father, we just pray that together we can continue to follow Christ and that you would be gracious and that you would be merciful to, to reveal him more fully to us and that we might set aside the sin that so easily besets us and every weight that hinders us from pursuing you. We ask these things in Christ's name for his sake and glory. Amen.